Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic worlds of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of Philam culture and speak with activists, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. The views and opinions expressed in this episode is solely that of the guest and does not necessarily reflect the views of Cultivate Labs or their associated programs. Follow us on all social media at Belay Creative or Cultivate Labs, both with a K. Terry Vallon is an organizer with the Bay Area Seafarers Coalition in the San Francisco Bay Area and also an executive board and international coordinating body member of the International Migrants Alliance. While he is currently on sabbatical until March 2024, he has served as the director of the Filipino Community Center in San Francisco for almost 20 years, where he has helped to build multi-sectoral and multi-racial alliances locally, nationally, and internationally. In this conversation, Terry talks about the importance of highlighting the struggles of Filipino people throughout the diaspora. This is the experience of so much of our community. We celebrate the victories of entrepreneurs and small businesses. We want to support those and have them grow. But the biggest corporations, I'm talking about like the Amazons, the Googles, the Ubers and things that are contractualizing work, not allowing workers to have basic livelihoods. It's a great question about why do individuals need to see these things? It's because this is a reality so much of our community. And a lot of people are experiencing a lot of the work we have done through the Filipino Community Center is with Filipino caregivers who are isolated, for instance, and taking care of elderly and disabled people in small six-bed facilities. One caregiver for six patients working 24 hours a day. They don't know that their experience is very common and that there are others struggling with the same issues. The exposure we've done around wage theft and even labor trafficking of Filipinos in the care home industry is something we've been able to expose. So we have to know these things so that we know where we need to change some of these systems. Also in this conversation, Terry explains how growing up in New Orleans informed his activism work and breaks down issues surrounding the upcoming APEC conference here in San Francisco. To learn more about the coalition and campaign events in November, go to linktree slash know the number two APEC. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to learn more about yourself, more about your work within the community, and also just get to know you better. I always ask this first question to all of my guests. It's a grounding question, and it is, which ancestor or anyone who has transitioned would you like to call into this conversation today to root us in this space and maybe even empower our work? Yeah, thank you, Nicole, for inviting me and having me on. It's a really important time for all of our communities, in particular in the Filipino community. It was a really rough last few years, and we've lost a lot of loved ones, especially elders who succumbed either to the pandemic virus or, you know, just time. But the ones I want to call in today to ground me in our discussion today 
are some of the young folks that we lost in the last few years from 2019. Amado Rodriguez Canem, he passed away in the Philippines, serving the people, serving the peasant and workers in the Philippines. Passed away in 2019, and his legacy lives on through his mom and his dad, the Madokaya Foundation. He was one of the nephews that I came up with and was part of our organizing community and became uh, activist and leader in his own right, leading us, me, myself, and others in the Bay Area and all the way to the Philippines and dedicating his life there. Passed away from the neglect of the Philippine government and the inability to feed and provide health care for people in the Philippines. Health condition was totally preventable, and he should not have passed away. We lost Tino, so this Tino, this Trishimo, and Melvin Factor, two youth who used to come through the Filipino Community Center. We worked with them over the years through the struggles as a youth, low-income immigrant family youth in the Excelsior and in San Francisco. They were forced out of the city. Melbourne had to go to Tri-City area, the Bay Area. Their family couldn't afford to be here and lost access to the community and resources that he had and needed. They went through mental health, substance abuse issues in the pandemic. We lost them during the pandemic, which was hard for everyone. We're losing our sons and nephews and our family, our kids. The last one is Kali Diwa Ildefonso Redondias. Uh, also one of my nephews, consider them my sons too. Raquel and Jason's only son and passed away too young earlier this year. Over six months ago, we lost him. Needless loss of young people in our community. And how much more we need to be there for each other and take care of each other. And the pandemic showed it how we need to stay as connected as possible and fight for the world that we need in every aspect, in every way, so that we don't lose children in our community, you know, adults and uh, no one needlessly in a world where we have more than enough resources to take care of each other. So, uh, sorry, got a little emotional, but grounds me to continue to fight for that for my kids for our future generations and for everyone struggling right now. So good question. Never apologize, please. We hear, or at least I believe, there is power in being vulnerable and also speaking our truths and honoring those, whether they're elders or our younger folks that have transitioned on, I think also brings power to the lives they lived and the impact that they had on their communities, on their families, and even older folks like us. We learned so much from our youth, and we actually honored Amado last year at our Ancestor Altars event, and we're going to be honoring Kali this year at our Ancestor Altars event on November 4th. So I, I love that. It's like that we're honoring not only our elders, but our younger generation who have transitioned on and did such important activism and important work in the community. So thank you for mentioning them. Just a couple. Bringing them into this conversation. Sorry. A couple more. Yeah. They were powerful leaders, organizers, activists themselves, artists. Tino, Melvin were some of the dopest MCs, poets in our community that we found doing the organizing work in the Excelsior neighborhood of San Francisco. And Kali and Amado really threw down for our community. Let me just say their names fully. Amado Kaya, Kanem Rodriguez, and Kali Diwa, Lebon, Odefanzo Redondias. 
Levon from Duran Duran, her families. We grew up in the 80s, so Duran Duran. I also grew up in the 80s. I also grew up in Excelsior. Okay. You know. So shout out to the Excelsior. <laughs> Went to Guadalupe <laughs> Elementary out there. For those that don't know, Excelsior is a home of many Filipinos, just like Soma, Filipinas Cultural District. And you also, you talk about Excelsior and FCC. And I wanted to know, as far as your personal journey, were there pivotal moments in your own life that moved you to dedicating your time to the cause of community organizing and activism? Yeah, reflecting on those ancestors that you brought into our discussion today. I was those young men myself. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, looking for community, looking for connections of folks. New Orleans is the South. It was black and white racist politics from you know the old muddy community and power in Louisiana. A lot of corruption out there, but racism was blatant. There weren't very many Asians in general, Filipinos in particular, a few thousand of us. So we stuck together as a community. I luckily grew up with a pretty large family that had some connection. And from very young, I just had that sense that I want to be as connected to as many people as possible in the way that my family was had a strong bond, our Filipino community and family values, some of which led me to want to extend the love and, and connection I had with my 16 cousins that I grew up with, like brothers and sisters, and even more on my dad's side. But why couldn't we connect with our larger community, not only the other Filipinos in the community, just infighting a lot of the elitism and things like that, but why couldn't we be as connected as my blood relatives? Why do we have to limit ourselves maybe to our own family? And then beyond that, the racism and the exclusion of you know, Asian communities, Latino communities, there wasn't very many when I was growing up out there. But I saw the racism blatantly. I grew up and went to a Catholic school and the white and black racism, racism of whites against blacks and just didn't understand it and didn't have the words and the ability to understand how do we move through this and past it and get to that better place that we need. Being able to go to college, learn about issues in our community, the API community, when I went to Duke University on the East Coast, uh, North Carolina, still the South, but there was an Asian American community of students that I met and connected with there. And then some Filipinos even in Durham, uh, North Carolina area. And, you know, and learned a little bit more about what happened in the Philippines and how I got here in the first place. But there was that Asian American community out there that I was empowered by. I wasn't a great organizer on campus at Duke. We were just really pissed off Asian kids and trying to figure things out and making some noise, and doing a few events and activities, a lot of cultural work too, but tried to bring some of that back to New Orleans, my younger brother and their high school crowd. But then it was when I went to UCLA for grad school and went to Los Angeles, California, where you know, it's huge Filipino communities, all kinds of resources on campus at UCLA. And then they took us out to the working class Filipino community in downtown LA, historic Filipino town. There I met veterans, working class, recent immigrant Filipinos. So that's where I kind of like, oh, okay, this is what I've been looking for. It wasn't perfect, but how do we build and strengthen and have resources in our community to address the issues that young people are facing to understand who they are and where they come from and how do we make change in the world? How do we address these challenges that we're facing, not only as youth, but as whole communities of displaced people from our homeland? Why are we here in the first place? Why was I in New Orleans, Louisiana, and my family there? And then after grad school, I ended up in a nonprofit work. Mostly in, I was in the environmental field, environmental justice work, but then 
switched over to Filipino community organizing and work. Shortly after September 11th, I moved to the Bay from LA a month after September 11th, October 2001, San Jose for a couple of years, and then San Francisco, helping to establish Filipino Community Center 2004 and serving uh, a pivotal moment was the displacement or the laying off of, mass layoff of close to a thousand Filipino airport screeners. Post September 11th, they said, maybe the hijacking wouldn't happen if we have citizens working at the airport as airport screeners. So they laid off en masse, something like 900 to 1,000 airport screeners at SFO, Oakland, and San Jose airports. It was in San Jose at the time, but we got active around that and serving those laid off airport screeners. Asian Law Caucus at the time filed a lawsuit and there was national origin discrimination. You can't say because they're not citizens, they're not qualified to do airport screening. So they won that years later, but these folks lost their jobs, lost housing, lost health care. And so we were trying to serve them. And like you mentioned, and you grew up in Excelsior, a lot of those airport screeners lived in the southeast part of San Francisco. Soma had the most concentrated community or being gentrified and pushed out by the dot-com and tech boom. But at Excelsior and the southeast uh, District 11 has the largest number of Filipinos, a little bit less concentrated, right on top of Daly City. So a lot of those airport screeners live there. We established Filipino Community Center there in 2004. So those kind of opportunities to struggle through who I am as an Asian American in the South, who I am as a Filipino, learning about the history and resources through college and higher education. But most of my learning happened in the community and waging these campaigns for airport screeners for immigrant rights against the war that was drawing Filipinos uh, from the Philippines and in Iraq and Afghanistan and drawing resources away from the everyday needs of Filipino immigrant and other working class immigrant community. Waging those campaigns of resources that are going to a war on terror when our communities need so much more in terms of all of the issues recent immigrant, low-income, people of color communities face around housing, healthcare, education. Um, incredible activists I met along the way gave me a lot of the answers I was looking for. And this movement of, of, of Filipinos active on the liberation and freedom of our homeland so that we're not forced to leave there and also addressing issues and needs and concerns of Filipino migrants that are all over the world. So my work at the Filipino Community Center is also connected to uh, some of my work in the International Migrants Alliance, so EMA, and we're building EMA USA to build a grassroots movement of migrants all over the world. I feel very fortunate to have found this path to grow up in New Orleans and then to be where I am today and then have this next generation, my daughter, getting active and organized now. So all of these kind of moments of coming into my own and finding my place in the world as a father, as a uncle, as an activist and organizer, community servant, um, profit director, etc. feel very fortunate to be where I am today and have had those opportunities and experiences. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's amazing, amazing work that you've been able to do in the past decades. <laughs> and I wanted to also ask, as individuals that live in these communities, how important do you think it is for them to have direct contact where oppressive forces may be more dominant with organizations like yourself and activists like yourself? Yeah, our, our community is struggling and striving and sometimes thriving. And I saw the market, uh, Soma Filipinas Cultural Heritage District, the entrepreneurs and restaurateurs and small businesses and others that are growing and thriving. That experience is great. We want to encourage that as much as possible so that folks can make a living and, and survive. This is one of the most 
expensive cities in the world, right? In this country. So it's hard to live here and to be here. And what's less visible are the struggles of everyday Filipino migrants, workers here. So it's very important if we are just watching TV or kind of social media and those things, of course, people are uh, putting out their best selves and their successes and things like that. Some people are putting out their struggles right now, but it's so important. Like the majority of our community is working class Filipino migrants from the Philippines who can't live in the Philippines because they can't get a job and make a living there. That's our homeland, rich and bountiful, thousand islands of some of the most fertile lands in the world so that we can grow and feed ourselves and build a thriving uh, homeland for our people and our communities. But the fact that we can't have jobs, the fact that peasant farm workers can't grow the food they need to survive and eat, they're importing rice from Thailand. This is some of the issues of the free trade problem and uh, the issues of APEC and free trade over the decades is that Filipinos can't grow rice for ourselves to feed ourselves because of the trade rules. We have to import rice from Thailand because it's cheaper versus feeding ourselves. So those kind of things and issues that we have to see those things every day. And if we don't look at those and neglect to look at those issues of everyday workers, the contractualization of work is also a part of kind of this neoliberal system that we're under. The economic conditions where you can't have a job at Schumar SM in the Philippines for more than six months, you're laid off and you have to start all over again. So there's no seniority, there's no ability to have job security, no pension, no retirement, anything. You're on and off six-month contracts, and you can't live off of that. You can't survive and plan a future with a family. We talk about our generations, and so these conditions is what's happening to most everyday people, and most of the people in our community are struggling with the fact that now, even in the U.S., this issue of contractualization that's very rampant in the Philippines, Jollibee workers who are never full-time employees of Jollibee are subcontracted by a company, and that company doesn't pay them enough or keep them on beyond six months, doesn't give them 40 hours a week so they can get any overtime benefits, et cetera. That's happening here now in the United States. Gig work is the same thing. There's no job security. You go gig to gig, and how do you build a life off of that? How do you find any sense of security? We're all now very disposable workers. This is the experience of so much of our community. We celebrate the victories of entrepreneurs and small businesses. We want to support those and have them grow. But the biggest corporations, I'm talking about like the Amazons, the Googles, the Ubers and things that are contractualizing work, not allowing workers to have basic livelihoods. How can you survive in a city like San Francisco on poverty wages, living check to check, and then you know no benefits? How do you raise children? How do you need to take care of your health? All of those things so you can plan your future. You know we're really dependent on those contracts. So this condition is something I think is so important. It's a great question about why do individuals need to see these things. It's because this is a reality so much of our community. And a lot of people are experiencing a lot of the work we had done through the Filipino Community Center is with Filipino caregivers who are isolated, for instance, and taking care of elderly and disabled people in small six-bed facilities. One caregiver for six patients working 24 hours a day. They don't know that their experience is very common and that there are others struggling with the same issues. The exposure we've done around wage theft and even labor trafficking of Filipinos in the care home industry is something we've been able to expose. So we have to know these things so that we know where we need to uh, change some of these systems. I was hopeful that the pandemic would show how very precarious people's jobs and livelihoods are. Like They're on the edge of homelessness and starvation. If we're not providing those services and resources as society, as government, then we're neglecting the welfare 
and well-being of our community. These issues, they're out there. They're not the happiest things that are in our community. We celebrate our talents and our victories and those kind of things, but not the reality of the day-to-day struggles and lives of everyday Filipinos from here to our homeland. And in every other country in the world, we're in about 182 countries of the world, Filipino migrants, 6,000 leaving every day from our homeland in war. What are the conditions they're facing in the Middle East, in Europe, in Latin America, Canada, of exploitation, abuse, labor trafficking all over the world. And this is a condition that is a symptom of the ability of the Philippines to take care of Filipinos. Would we be here if the government and the system in the Philippines was working for the benefit of people? Probably not. But we here we are. <laughs> the issues of migrant Filipinos here in San Francisco, the Bay Area, in the United States and all over the world are issues that we tackle. And then some of the work that we do here, and when you say everyday concerns and issues that we need to expose individuals to, it's also the other low-income immigrant, working-class, people-of-color communities. So we built the Filipino community side-by-side with the Latino, Pacific Islander, Black, Chinese, and other communities in the Excelsior that's growing up there that's very diverse neighborhood. Even the streets are named cities and countries all over the world, but there's old Italian, Irish immigrants there. There's an Armenian community center where we did our five-year anniversary. So it's a very diverse neighborhood, and there's Nicaraguan, Filipino mixed families. So yeah, we make sure that the work we do and what we expose young people who are getting active in the community to is the issues of our brothers and sisters from communities all over the world that are having similar experiences of exploitation, living very precariously on jobs that just don't pay enough for what we need to live and survive and thrive, not just survive on the edge of paycheck to paycheck, but our community should be thriving and there's enough resources for us to do that. We just have to fight for those things. I love how you mention other communities of color because it's not just a Filipino issue. These are issues that affect many immigrant communities. And I wanted to talk a little bit. You mentioned APEC, but for those that don't know, I actually just found about what APEC was in the last meeting I attended But what is APEC? It's been known for attracting world leaders, President Biden, and then also on the flip side of that, protesters. What exactly is APEC and what are your views about its impact locally and internationally? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I mentioned it, but it really explained. So a lot of people don't, don't know what it is, APEC, Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation. That's what it stands for. And it is this forum that includes 21, they call it member economies. They don't even call it countries or states. They say 21 member economies because the point is to facilitate and enhance trade and the movement of capital and goods and people in the Asia Pacific region, which is huge. So there's 21 countries, including the United States, Canada, and then and, uh, even in Latin America, uh, Mexico, Peru, and Chile, along the Pacific. So you know, 21 member economies. Um, of course, China is there, Philippines, Japan, Korea, Australia, etc. It's this free trade forum where they would talk about how do we facilitate trade and economic activity throughout the Asia Pacific region. And that's huge. This is some 40% of world GDP, about 3 billion people in the world are captured in these 21 member economies. More than 50% of world trade goes to the Asia Pacific region across the Oceans. Philippines are actually at the center of a lot of that. About 80% of goods move mostly on ships, cargo ships and container ships. So it's less through the air, but ordering Amazon stuff, it's all coming on boats. And Filipinos are about 
25 to 30 percent of that workforce seafarers and one of the issues we work on is the international migrants alliance filipinos are known to be good seafarers working on boats and during the pandemic they got trapped on those ships carrying goods back and forth because of the pandemic they didn't let them offshore and some of them were really exploited and on contracts way beyond the nine months or so they're supposed to be at sea imagine living on sea on a boat for nine months supposed to end, but some of them won 11, 12, 14 months. And there were suicides, mental health tragedies. But APEC is a forum where since it was established in 1989, they've been trying to facilitate greater movement of goods under kind of a neoliberal framework. When we say neoliberal, they want the ability of investments and money to be able to move across borders among these 21 member economies as easily as possible. Now, say the Philippines wanted to restrict things, for instance, we want to grow our own rice and feed ourselves versus importing rice from Thailand. APEC and the free trade neoliberal system would be preventing that because you have to allow goods and money and capital to move freely between these member economies. And you can't say the Philippines wants to have its own rice, things like that. So the movement of goods, they say it will be cheaper, but in the end, food sovereignty becomes a problem. When a food shortage or crisis happens or a company decides to fold and it's done making rice, where the Filipinos left um, with no rice from Thailand or those kind of investors pull out of a company and say, oh, we want to invest somewhere else. That's putting people at risk for starvation, food insecurity, and things like that. And the ability for the Philippines to determine for itself and the Filipino people what it wants or what it needs to serve the needs and interests of the people. So things like liberalization, privatization, so the ports or electricity, PG&E, a private company, owns a power grid in California. And when those things go out, who's accountable? And wildfires happen, deaths happen, and these private corporations are, are less accountable and are even you know, suing governments in other countries now. So APEC under neoliberalism and these free trade deals is allowing for the maximum profit for these companies. So who benefits really is the biggest corporations that are able to take advantage of the easy movement of goods and money. They can go in and out of the Philippines or Mexico, but it's left the people, for instance, in Mexico, they can't grow their own corn. The Mexico wanted to grow its own corn, and they didn't want any genetically modified corn coming into Mexico. But under APEC and these free trade agreements, including things like NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, it's now called uh, USMCA or US-Mexico-Canada Agreement. But Mexico is the number one importer of US corn. Mexico can grow its own corn and has for generations and they kept it sustainable. Now GMO, pesticide-infused corn, overfloods their market and 2 million farmers have lost work and their livelihood growing corn because US corn is what's shipped into Mexico, has displaced farm workers, has displaced jobs, etc. So this movement of goods and money and workers across borders at the whim of the biggest corporations has really damaged the livelihoods and killed people literally. Now, when people resist against that, this is the other ugly side of APEC is the militarization and repression of protests and resistance. For instance, Brandon Lee, who's a San Francisco resident, decided to commit his life to the indigenous people of the Cordilleras, where they're fighting dam projects, mining projects, and other projects. Things that were facilitated by APEC, like investment in mining from U.S. corporations, is what was damaging the indigenous people's lands in the Cordilleras, the Ifugao and other uh, indigenous uh, peoples and tribes there. And so they were fighting against it. They were trying to defend their land, prevent these mining projects from taking over huge portions of the Cordillera region. 
And Brandon was there as part of environmental and human rights defense and was attacked. He was red tagged. He was labeled a terrorist and then being harassed and surveilled by the Philippine military and police. And there was an assassination attempt on his life in 2019. And we helped to airlift him out of that region. But not every land defender, indigenous rights activist, gets to come back to the United States. But he's continued that fight here. He's still fighting for indigenous people's rights. So these are practical issues on the ground. The affordable housing crisis here, these are all symptoms of the free trade and neoliberal policies that happen through forums like APEC. And the U.S. in particular is pushing a new Indo-Pacific economic framework. I'm sorry to go way deep into this, but the IPEF or the Indo-Pacific economic framework is the U.S.'s trade war with China. China is the biggest emerging economy in the world, rival for the United States in, in terms of economic power. So the U.S. has created this IPEF and is trying to get together with India, which is not even an APEC, but they're coming because the U.S. wants to invite them, the Philippines and other countries, to counter China's rising economic power. But it doesn't just end in friendly economic agreements or disagreements, but is the militarization of the region. So four new U.S. military bases in the Philippines, the remilitarization of the island of Okinawa in Japan and in Korea and other places, the Pacific Islands. It's both an economic trade war between the U.S. and China, which is now heading towards military conflict in the region. And this is another way that our community is going to be further devastated. The resources that are going to go into war and militarization versus housing here in San Francisco, the needs of childcare and education, basic services, food security here, and then in the Philippines as well, the impacts of militarization displace our communities in the Philippines. So trying to connect all of these issues together in an explanation of what APEC is and why we're resisting it. But uh, generally, this free trade agreement under a neoliberal framework of the capitalist system that is just wreaking havoc on all of our communities from here to our homelands. Thank you for explaining that in a nutshell. You did an excellent job. It's going to be a week-long conference. How do you think that will affect us locally? Our colleagues, Raquel and others in the Soma Filipinas, South American Community Action Network, or SOMCAM, and others can also speak specifically to the impacts in the South American market. The South American community has historically faced some of the toughest crises in terms of health, the economy, and the political struggles in our neighborhood. When you have so much wealth moving in and out, the dot-com boom in the 90s and the tech boom in the 2000s that have displaced Filipinos, generations of families. That's where a lot of families started in the city, is in the SROs, like a whole family living in a single residency unit. But generations have come through Selma. And you know the fact that they're holding this APEC convention in the south of market at the Moscone Center, the Yerba Buena kind of area where even that project of the Yerba Buena uh, facility displaced a lot of Filipinos, Intercontinental Hotel, et cetera. So market rate development, the tech uh, companies that have pushed in and the residents, et cetera, have pushed a lot of our community out to the Excelsior, Daly City, down to Peninsula, and then South Contra Costa, North Alameda, et cetera. So we face displacement historically through the cycles of economic ups and downs, AIDS pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID pandemic, et cetera. So We've suffered as a community in South of Market, and people have still been fighting. We have institutions there, like the Bayanihan Community Center, Filipino American Development Foundation, Bindal Stiff, and now the new Soma Filipinas Cultural Heritage District, Balai Creative, and others. So it's great that we have those institutions. Uh, cool Arts has a new facility there. I heard event space. 
So we need to keep um, marking our community's presence there. Now, this APEC gathering is 21 heads of state. Their entourages of tens of 10,000 or so, they're expecting staff of these 21 member economies of APEC. And then all of the CEOs of the biggest corporations, Walmart, Google, Uber, Lyft, et cetera, they're all coming to have this gathering of elites, essentially. It's not everyday people that are invited to this summit. I think you have to pay $5,000 or something to get in at a minimum. But the city, we're in a fight for the health and well-being of the city itself and the residents that have been here. And the city is now asking, I think Mayor Lemon Breed's budget is asking for 3% cuts in all departments in the city of San Francisco. It reserved $10 million to pay for APEC costs, whether that's police and overtime of staff, et cetera. And they raised $20 million from the corporations that are donating. Biggest donation from Great Casino, I think. But Kaiser's in there, Uber, Walmart, et cetera. They're donating to the city of San Francisco to host APEC. Those tens of millions of dollars need to go to the people of San Francisco hosting this event at a time when uh, we're recovering from a pandemic and the 2008 financial crisis, which APEC didn't solve, then the pandemic-related economic crisis, we're still suffering and we're still recovering. There's homeless encampments in the street that they're going to try to cover up or sweep away. There's RVs. all over. I live right here by SF State and there's RVs parked along Lake Merced and students can't afford housing. Why is this gathering of elites for a week at the Moscone Center going to solve anything for the city of San Francisco when people are still suffering, still don't have food security? It's going to lock down blocks of the South of Market right around near Burbon and Moscone Center where elders won't be able to get to their doctor's appointments. They have to come in and out or their family members won't get to visit them because they don't have the ID to get through this national special security event exclusion zone where you need to have an ID or badge to even walk around. Routes of bus lines will get rerouted. Can they get to their healthcare appointments, their dialysis appointments and things like that? So the residents in the Soma in that exclusion zone are just finding out bits and pieces of information, how this is going to affect their lives for at least a week. And the militarization of San Francisco, police are required overtime, going to work 12-hour shifts, can't take any vacation time during this week of APEC. And we've heard the worst repression you can imagine protecting these heads of state and corporate CEOs it was 2015 in the Philippines, and there was water cannons deployed against protesters there. In uh, Hawaii in 2011, they had tanks and snipers on roofs to prevent anybody from getting close to these corporate CEOs and, and, and government elites. And then in just last year in Thailand, when Kamala Harris announced, oh, let's go host APEC in, in San Francisco, my hometown, the protesters there were facing rubber bullets from police and, and military uh, forces in Thailand. So... They really don't want protests and they don't want people opposing what they're doing behind closed doors to the exclusion of migrant voices, worker voices, women voices, indigenous human rights, environmental advocates and activists. So they declared the area a national special security event. I think the whole city of San Francisco so that they can protect these 21 heads of state and corporate CEOs from two things they said in the SF Standard article. One, they say terrorist activity or civil disruption as if those things are at all equatable. Of course, you know, nobody wants terrorist activity, but civil disruption is people's voices who've been excluded from all of the APEC talks. You know, Google and Amazon got in the early talks back in 2022 and March last year to design the free trade agreements and have the most say about how digital trade and shipping and artificial intelligence can influence trade throughout the region. But workers weren't at the table then. Migrant workers, migrant voices, 
women's voices, etc. The exclusion of communities and voices and our communities, not just the Filipino community, but other working class immigrant, low income people of color communities are not at the table and we are going to protest. They can't prevent us from doing that. But what's the repression that we're going to face? How does this lockdown also affect the small businesses? In the zone, they're saying, y'all have to shut down for a week, close your kitchen, turn off your stoves. And imagine for a week not being able to operate as a small business. So a week of no business activity is going to devastate some of the small businesses as well. But everyday people in Soma are concerned about how this is going to impact their livelihoods, the militarization of San Francisco, and repression of resistance. There's the protests for uh, Palestine right now, and the right wing and militarization of the protests is, is going to try to silence voices. But we have to push as hard as we can to bring our voices to the forefront. We have a summit on Saturday, November 11th, and then a big protest on November 12th. So we'll be there and they can't stop us. Yeah, they showed or we recently saw the documentary of the anti-APEC protests in Seattle. And that was very eye-opening for me. Historically, San Francisco has been the home of many protests that created active change and consciousness within the community. So what do you think this particular protest and these interactions can teach us and our community about building progression that's active and conscious of change? This is maybe one of the most important moments for us to rise up and organize and mobilize together as the Filipino community and other communities. 21 heads of state, including Bongbong Marcos Jr., the son of the former dictator, right? People like your family and others have protested since martial law and the declaration of martial law of his father, Ferdinand Marcos. So the stolen wealth of that family is still stolen and, and has not been recovered, stolen from the people of the Philippines. And some of even the labor groups here in San Francisco, you're right, like San Francisco is a center of protest. It's one of the most expensive cities in the country and the world, but it's also one of the richest cities in the country and the world. And this disparity between the rich and the poor, the homeless encampments, when there's so much wealth, tech, and finance, so the glaring inequality is in your face here in San Francisco. And that inequality and the repression of resistance here is something that we confront uh, often in San Francisco, this uh, city that is an important site of struggle. And progression, like you said, is that we are building on a legacy of struggle. The struggle of the I Hotel, the tenants there that face the first displacements of the large concentration of Filipinos in Manila Town and the I Hotel. That's the legacy we're progressing from, that the farm workers struggle before that, the anti-martial law struggle, the veteran struggle, et cetera. So there's a lot of a history of struggle. The Third World Liberation Front, you talked about your family is part of that. All of those struggles historically is what we are progressing from today. The anti-war work we did, the immigrant rights work we did in 2006 and beyond, and up till today. So all of those struggles and solidarity with the other communities in San Francisco and internationally, the struggle in Palestine, in the Philippines, in Korea, in Okinawa, and all throughout the Asia-Pacific region. That's a legacy that we can carry here in San Francisco. We have 21 heads of state, like Modi, one of the fascist leaders in India, Marcos Jr., fascist leader in the Philippines. They're going to be here. And the biggest corporations and CEOs that have profited the most off of misery and displacement and death of so many of our communities from here to our homelands, they're all going to be here. And so this is an important moment for us to share our outrage. Even SF Labor here, some of the leaders there 
they know the human rights violations in the Philippines. The repression of labor there is how even the labor unions and movement here in the U.S. is in solidarity with labor struggles in the Philippines. So the recent killings of Alex De La Rosa and other leaders from the Kalusong Mayo Uno, most recently in the last week or so, are things that we've been meeting with and how the labor teach in here about APEC. And there are many kind of of the local unions that are in solidarity with the struggle that, and want to show up against the CEOs and the government leaders that will be here during APEC. So we look forward to joining with them. And the environmental and climate crisis that we're also facing here and in the Philippines as well, we're on the front lines of some of the, on the Pacific Rim in particular, we're susceptible to those typhoons that have been intensifying and killing thousands of our people from this global climate crisis that we're facing. So the environmental, there's a whole climate block that is um, also going to be protesting with us. So climate, justice groups, labor, migrant groups, uh, national liberation movements that are trying to free their homelands are all going to be with us. And we're expecting thousands to be there with us. And, and Filipinos are actually helping to lead that, that united front of communities, movement struggles that are opposing APEC as one important symbol and concentration of the biggest corporations and government leaders that are exploiting our people and plundering our natural resources and homelands. Yeah, that's why it's exciting that the legacy of those struggles come together with this particular gathering of heads of state and biggest CEO, corporate CEOs. We want everybody to come out with us and join us in the streets November 11th at SF State and November 12th in our protests. And I know safety might be a concern for folks who've never protested or did something like this. Can you share some insights or strategies that you've employed or folks um, in the anti-APEC communities have maintained to keep an inclusive and safe environment during demonstrations? And how can these practices be applied to large-scale protests like the one happening in November? That's what we do and learned over generations of, of movement building activism is that we have this right to free speech and protest that they cannot deny. They want, may want to declare it a national special security event, have exclusion zones, etc. But we have to assert our right to protest and our free speech rights, First Amendment rights. And so we do everything from right now working with legal allies, groups like the National Lawyers Guild and the Center for Protest Law and Litigation that are helping us to assert this right to protest. They may have their plans, but we are going to be there, and they can't deny that, and they better expect it. Whatever plans they have to lock down and secure and militarize San Francisco, they will have to deal with massive protests of thousands of people that will be uh, there at the front doors of APEC. It happened in Seattle, and, and they weren't prepared, but the protests got up to the front doors of the convention center in Seattle. This is an important moment, and This is the legacy and history of of when you meet behind closed doors and hide the plans and schemes of neoliberalism and economic free trade, which we call more of corporate trade. What happened in Seattle in 99, the Battle of Seattle, they called it, was people were there to protest and raise their voices against these free trade agreements. There was a lot of more consciousness, and that's the education we have to do. More people need to know what neoliberal free trade looks like and globalization. Then... Tens of thousands of people came out. We don't have that level of awareness and mobilization today, but when the police repressed and and responded with heavy-handed militarization in Seattle, that drew more people out. They were even more pissed off that they're trying to silence voices of everyday people who just want to express their concerns about environmental, human rights, etc. 
we ensure that we're asserting our legal right to do this, meeting with whoever wants to meet with us to assert that we are going to have our voices heard no matter what. And then from there, we design protest activities in a way that allows people to express in every way they can imagine their voices and their concerns and the issues that they want to raise to these heads of state, corporate CEOs, et cetera. In the protests, we provide different venues for folks to participate. Mass March on November 12th, we're going to gather at Embarcadero. These are not hidden things, but we're going to march down to the Moscone Center and protest there. Now, where they want to put us or whatever, where they want to try to corral us, we're going to try to get as close as possible to uh, have our voices heard. And we have our own kind of plans around safety and security. We make sure that we have hundreds of people that are going to marshal kind of our folks there. We're going to have undocumented folks in our marching rally. There are caravans of migrants coming down from the Pacific Northwest and up from SoCal. We're going to bring migrants' demands as part of my work with the International Migrants Alliance to APEC and then even beyond the 2024 election year. Those concerns are going to carry even beyond November. So APEC is gathering. We're going to protest, bring the migrants' demands and other women's demands, workers' demands to the doors of APEC. It's an important moment where people feel their power. Like my daughter getting organized, it was in protests and actions at the San Francisco Unified School District where she felt her power and voice, that she can make a change in the community, in particular through uh, mass mobilization and street protests, because often we don't get a seat at the table. And whatever we do, that's great. We need to assert it and keep pushing for the things that we need um, and want from those in power. And then eventually being in those places of power. But at this point in time, the most opportunity we have to raise our voices is in the streets. And that's why we need to be out there as much as possible, as big as possible. Uh, but we provide security and safety. Others want to do different kinds of actions throughout the city uh, during the whole week of APEC. Others are planning those kinds of actions and activities. But as the coalition, we're assuring on November 12th, it will be a safe march and rally with legal observers uh, from the National Lawyers Guild and others. We're training 100 legal observers to be prepared to help ensure the safety and security of people asserting their free speech rights to protest and their First Amendment right to raise their voices and the issues of concern. Just to sum everything up, and for those that are now, you've ignited a fire, I think, within folks that are listening to this podcast right now. Where can people connect with you? How can people, if people want to fly into San Francisco, drive into San Francisco, how can they connect with you and the work that you're doing and the activities that will happen? What's the best way they can reach out and get more information? This is an important moment in history, I think, for our movement and struggle as Filipinos in San Francisco and beyond throughout the U.S. and around the world. For us to oppose APEC, and it's being hosted here in the United States, in our backyard in San Francisco, in Selma, is an important moment for all of us here in the city, in South of Market, and then across the country. The coalition has over 100 organizations, very diverse groups with different politics, but all united to oppose APEC in this gathering of corporate elites and government representatives of those elites. The coalition has a link tree and a website now. The link tree is the easiest way to get in touch with us, to join the coalition either as your organization or community, and even as an individual, if you want to volunteer and come out. So if you go to linktree, linktr.ee slash no two number two, APEC, A-P-E-C. So Linktree slash no to APEC, and we can put it in the podcast info. That's the easiest way where you'll see all of the resources. There's a website as well linked there, and folks can 
join the coalition as a sponsor, endorser, or signatory. As an individual, you can volunteer. We're welcoming folks to come in as early as November 10th because we're going to have a huge summit. We have the 800-person venue at SF State, the annex there. So folks on campus there helped us to secure that venue. I think we're going to fill it for the summit. So this is a summit where we're gathering all of the voices together, have workshops, plenary speakers, a keynote to talk about why we're united against APEC and the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So against IPEF and APEC, we're going to have this summit all day on Saturday, November 11th. And on November 12th, we're organizing the mass mobilization march to the Moscone Center with everybody joining us on Sunday. On that day, it's probably an all-day activity from midday until the end of when we finish march and rally. But folks flying in, you know, we're not offering housing and anything like that, but trying to coordinate folks who may have housing available. There's a lot of spreadsheets going around of who needs housing and who has housing available. But that organizing of folks who are willing to offer their places, folks who need resources to get down here, the migrant caravans are, are renting 15 passenger vans and things like that. So caravans, there'll be a reception of the migrants caravan here on November 10th where migrant groups, undocumented, unaccompanied Latino youth from the Pacific Northwest are coming down from the Northwest and then up from SoCal, migrant Filipino uh, workers coming up to bring their issues to APEC as well. We're going to have a reception here in the city on November 10th, Friday, before we go into the summit and mobilization Saturday and Sunday. So it's exciting. It's an opportunity for us to raise our voices against that 1%. Now we've been talking about, everybody's been talking about neoliberalism and the 1%, how they profited so much, even through a pandemic and the wealth gap has gotten even bigger during a pandemic and afterwards. So here's some of those leaders and folks who profited the most off of our misery. So let's go. Let's go. Thank you so much, Terry. Uh, is there any last things you, you want to say or, or leave with before we end? Definitely our voice, and in particular in the Filipino community, we're being asked tomorrow to help chant lead and drum and protest for the rights of Palestine. But the cultural and artists that connected through the podcast and other parts of Balai Creative, we welcome them. We heard there's a group called Artists Against APEC that may do a concert. There's going to be a little visual art. So artists, cultural workers who want to contribute in the, the culture of resistance as also one of the most powerful ways that we engage folks to be part of this movement and struggle for what we need as a community and what we need to fight for, representing those through images, through songs, and representing the, the beautiful struggle that we have that we can share with future generations, that we did our part in 2023 to oppose APEC and neoliberalism. We can go to Peru next year against APEC. There will be conferences and gatherings against war and militarism next year in Hawaii. There's gatherings of anti-imperialists in Malaysia next year. We'll be there. So join this movement and struggle. The Philippines has a huge role to play in the anti-imperialist movement around the world. And there's a lot of recognition of our leadership as a community in advancing these struggles in solidarity with people's struggles all over the world. So here in San Francisco, we have an important role to play. November 11th and 12th, join the Node APEC Coalition. Thank you, Terry. With everything going on in the world today, from the Middle East to locally here in San Francisco. Today's conversation highlighted systemic suppression and exclusion of marginalized voices in major international events. Terry mentioned how past APEC protests against heads of state and corporate CEOs are often met with severe repression, ranging from the use of water cannons to rubber bullets to even tanks. 
and the organizers of such events are often labeled civil disruptors, as if they were equivalent to terrorists, thereby often undermining the rights of people to express their opinions and their right to assembly or freedom of speech. This conversation also reminds me of my own uncle, Patrick Saliver, who became the focus of the FBI due to his active role in the 1967-1968 student strikes at SF State and his role in the Third World Liberation Front. You know, the FBI went to great lengths, including monitoring his meetings in my grandparents' basement to even wiretapping the family phone. That information was gathered and later used against him, resulting in his time in federal prison. In a similar vein, the FBI classified the Black Panther and civil rights activist Fred Hampton as a radical threat in 1967. Their efforts to undermine him included sowing disinformation among Black progressive groups and infiltrating the local Panthers organization. Tragically, Fred Hampton's fate differed from my own uncle's. As Chicago law enforcement unleashed a hail of gunfire in a pre-dawn raid, killing Fred Hampton and several other Black Panther members. I think about their sacrifices and how those sacrifices paved the way for real change, such as the establishment of ethnic studies in universities across the U.S., or empowering the most marginalized sector of Chicago's Black community, drawing people into political activism through their own freedom-fighting organization. And in contrast to the 1960s, today, we possess technology and social media that enables the spreading of information unreported by the government or mainstream media. Information that might be useful for the disenfranchised to organize, to show up, and to continue to make a change. This conversation today emphasizes the vital need to safeguard our freedom of speech, our freedom of assembly, and the inclusion of diverse voices in conversations and decision-making processes. I mean, if we as a culture and society are to place people over profits, then why are epic conferences like these only open to the 1%? And why is the active participation of the freedom of assembly such a threat? Harry will be helping to lead mobilizations during the No to APEC Coalition's Week of Action from November 12th to the 17th in the San Francisco Bay Area. To learn more about the coalition and the events in November, go to linktree slash no the number two APEC. The views and opinions expressed in this episode is solely that of the guests and does not necessarily reflect the views of Cultivate Labs or their associated programs. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Saliver. You can follow me on Instagram at Kindred Kapwa. The podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Belay Creative and is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at Belay Creative.
www.ghostdiaries.org.